Welcome to Heavy Hops. My name is Alexi. And my name's Sam. Joining us today is Grant Netzorg, frontman of the Denver-based Doom Trio in the Company of Serpents. The band's recent release, Lux, landed on multiple 2020 year-end lists, including our own. We dive into the album, touching on production, recording with three members for the first time, and other ways the album differentiates from past releases. Grant opens up about lyrical content, the length at which he goes to ensure the uniqueness of test pressings, and his multifaceted recording and live rig, which we eagerly dive into. If you've not checked out Lux, do so from our 2020 year-end playlist, which is included in the episode notes. Let's dive and get heavy. Welcome to Heavy Hops, Grant. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> Thank yeah. you. Thank you for having me. Um, let's first talk about uh, the new album, Lux, that came out in May. Let's start with the worst uh, question an interviewer can ask, and that is, tell us about the reception for this album. <laughs> oh, you mean like during a fucking apocalypse, no less, too? Um, yeah, 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 definitely. <laughs> um, well, let's just say that the, the the best laid tour routing of Mice and Men uh, didn't exactly work out um, for, for 2020. Um, and uh, we had been planning to be on the road for a good chunk of uh, the last quarter of the year. Obviously, that didn't, didn't shake out. Um, um, but, yeah, I think from a reception perspective, I think a lot of people are... Um, it's landing with a lot of folks, which I, I always appreciate seeing. Um, another thing that I think um, has kind of helped it um, in terms of people kind of understanding where I'm coming from is that in previous releases, I've kind of taken the whole sort of enigmatic approach where I don't really like lay out or spell out any of the esoteric ideas that I'm playing with really. I just kind of like hope that people glean some semblance of them and um, you know appreciate that. But um, most of the time, like when that would would happen, um, like it, I, I guess you know maybe maybe folks have more on their minds during again a, a fucking apocalypse or or hundred year plague uh, than going in depth with like the weird um, sort of ramblings, uh, semi coherent ramblings of a uh, of a. Uh, 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 pseudo wizard occultist, um, but um, I, I, I guess I, where I'm going with this is I spelled out the, the sort of esoteric conceptual ideas on this record a lot more um, deeply than I had in previous uh, releases, and kind of talked about the inspiration um, both on the uh, the macro level of the of the above of the as above so below a uh, little dichotomy there on the mm -hmm. macro level i talked about how there are certain ideas with this record that um have a long history of consideration amongst you know different esoteric um minds and different um, western occult lineages and whether you're talking about hermetic uh, uh, the uh, corpus of hermetic literature or cabalistic thought or um, just Western ceremonial magic, um, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of these things are kind of intertwined in many different ways, although uh, depending upon who you're speaking to from a wizard's perspective, they might not be that close of bedfellows as, as certain Victorian occultists liked to claim. But nonetheless, um, I kind of spelled out these, these ideas 
um, to a much greater degree than I than I have on previous records, um, and talked about how I relate them on the below level, the mundane level of the as above so below dichotomy. There, um, how it how these same ideas related to my experience of, of becoming a father and um, like everything that kind of comes with that. So on. Um, so on, on the like the, the macro level, the, the title Lux is kind of a nod to the tradition of trying to look at like a fundamental root essence for all manifest being, um, for everything in the manifest universe. And like, um, you know, alchemists and hermeticists and Kabbalists and all of these other different lineages of, of sort of esoteric thought have all kind of played around with with the idea of a prima materia or fundamental root essence. And one analogy that gets made all the time is that all is light, right? Yeah. So it's playing with the idea of light as a fundamental root essence um, um, on a broad level, but on a mundane level, that's also the etymology behind my daughter's name. And so um, it's the, the way that I've kind of phrased it, um, like when, when asked about it, is that a, a on one level, the record kind of functions as a form of esoteric prayer for me. And on another level, it kind of functions as a message of love to my kid. Um, so lots of, lots of uh, weirder stuff going on that, that like, I don't know how I would have expected people to glean all that from just like reading lyric sheets. So I kind of spelled all that shit out in interviews and, and just, um, and whatever press we did for it. Um, and I think that, helped with people being kind of be like, oh, that's what the fuck he's getting on about. Like, cool, <laughs> you know? Um, so I think that that helped in its reception to some degree. But I, I again, like when you th put something out there artistically in the world, like there's only so much you can do with how people are going to um, perceive it. And, you know, people are always going to have their own ideas as to what you, they think you're talking about. Um, and Oftentimes, those interpretations are as valid as anything I might have been thinking I was writing about when when I was initially creating something, um, and that's yeah. one of the cool things about this record too. Is like there's there's certain songs on it that like I thought were about one thing when I began writing them three years ago, you know about um, not well I guess yeah it wasn't three years ago when I I met you Alexi and played Scorched Tundra but um, like. Um, we were working on some of that material at that time. Um, and from like a political um, sort of viewpoint, I saw, I thought that there are certain, certain things that I was talking about uh, when like, when you get like the sort of saber rattling of war, um, war hawks kind of going on. I thought that that's what I was talking about um, in some of the, the lyrics that I was playing with, but turns out they apply real well to a fucking apocalypse too. <laughs> It's beauty of uh, music and, you know, lyricism and poeticism is, you know, it's kind of in the eye of the beholder, you know, yeah. how you interpret things. And given the current climate, that's not yeah. really shocking how people, you know, <laughs> can find that lining in, in your writing, you know? Yeah. That's, uh, it's always fun to see, see where people take stuff. And like, sometimes they, like people completely missed my intent and that's fine. That can be their interpretation of you know my my art, um, but um, it can it can make me bristle sometimes when somebody presumes something that I would feel is kind of a negative characterization of my work um, from 
you know, they like I've I don't I can't tell you how many times like I've had like metalheads come up to me be like fuck yeah satan man and i'm like yo this is about the cabalistic exploration of light <laughs> like do you know what kabbalah is like <laughs> like um, like and i'm not you know, like no shade on satan either or or uh or satanists i, I read uh, anton levey at far too impressionable in an age you can probably tell that by my uh, gothy attire um but like like yeah like um it's just funny when people people leap to conclusions as to what they think that you're on about when like, like, you know, you could, you could be going in a completely different direction in terms of your, your intent, but you know, it's not always up to me once, uh, once that art's out in the world, some people are going <laughs> to think it's one thing when it's uh, something else entirely. Mm -hmm. um, as far as intent um, and for those that, uh, may not have developed their own perspectives and are looking from guidance uh, from you. Um, can you talk a little bit at large about some of the concepts you're exploring and then how being a father uh, kind of connects to the album in, in general? Yeah, um, I mean, that's so that can be pretty open-ended, so I'll try and write it in, it in because uh, um, I have been lovingly described as long form sometimes, so I'll try not to rattle on for 30 minutes on that one subject. But um, um, broadly speaking, like a lot of my interest in occultism and um, I guess esoteric sides of, you know, um, of theology uh, as opposed to the exoteric or, or, you know, official stories, so to speak, um, um, are these, this, this notion of, of, kind of galvanizing oneself to radically transform um, into uh, some sort of higher form of attainment or some some higher, um, I guess, higher manifestation of your best potential. Um, and uh, that capacity is in every every human um, through the eyes of a lot of these, these different uh, esoteric minds. Um, but, um, that's that's kind of like what the attraction is for me um, is this notion of like kind of putting your mind to radical self transformation and kind of reaching for um, I guess a, a, a higher functioning version of the uh, the dross based material that we um, that we begin with uh, in, our, in our our respective journeys uh, in life. Um, have I, have I gotten there? Like, uh, I, there's still a whole lot, uh, I can be doing a whole lot better. Um, but that's kind of the initial attraction to me for, for the, the, I guess, all the various threads of, of quote unquote Western occultism. But there's, if you read into the history of a lot of this stuff, it's, it's a misnomer to call it Western occultism too, because there's a lot of overlap in terms of the esoteric ideas and whether you're not talking about um, you know, Victorian of ideas of West versus East are not necessarily applicable when you look at the, the true history of all of these different mystery schools and um, these different uh, temples of various initiates. Um, so anyways, that, like I said, I can ramble. Um, <laughs> um, but that that's kind of the initial interest for me. And um, so that's I would say with the exception of our very first record, um, our debut, that's been a steady theme of what I've been writing about and what I've been exploring in our music since our second record of The Flock. And um, 
it's for for the first handful of releases, I didn't spell out any of those ideas, like I said. So like of the flock, merging in light has um, imagery of the union of opposites and the alchemical marriage um, that was relevant to at the time on a mundane level, I had just married my uh, better half. Um, and so there's this union of opposites there, but there's also this notion of like the third mind that William Burroughs and Brian Geisen um, um, wrote about pretty extensively. That's basically this idea that whenever you have two individuals um, coming together, there is a third mind created by the, the sum of their consciousness that's greater than the sum of its parts. Um, it's almost like this extra entity that is over and above um, the, the two individuals present in, in that conversation. But these are all ideas that I was talking about five, six years ago. And, uh, um, you know, like um, didn't really tell anybody and just kind of like, like, yeah, like somebody will figure it out. <laughs> right. right? <laughs> um, and, you know, like, um, like that, the other thing is like, like, at the time from, I guess, a, a, a musical maturity standpoint, I was also just trying to write the heaviest thing possible um, at all times. And um, I didn't always give it the same breathing room that I've learned to do um, as I've matured in my, my songwriting capacity that I've done like on this record and the previous one. Although there were interludes dating back to like our second album um, that played with like eerie spare acoustic parts and things like that. Um, I've given it more room to like that, that side of things, more room to breathe on later releases here. Um, but then again, like in terms of how this all relates to me personally is like, um, nobody creates in a vacuum. And if I'm like, if I'm trying to like write a song that plays with different esoteric themes or ideas that I find captivating, I'm going to do so in a capacity that relates to how that's kind of shown up in my own life. Um, you know, whether it's at, at that time, um, then fresh marriage, um, or um, now going on three years ago, um, the birth of my, my child, um, or anything else that I'm kind of experiencing in life, like this ends up getting written into my, uh, my work. And so, so while like on a curb level, it might seem like I'm writing about all this like really abstract, um, you know, out there stuff from a from a philosophical perspective. The reality is that I'm I'm trying to relate it to um, my own personal experience and through the lens of of my lived day to day experience and all of the various confluence of uh, uh, of, of circumstances that have led to you know exactly who I am in this present moment um, um, at any given moment when I'm writing. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Um, and this is also an album that is your first as kind of a trio or released as a trio. And so you do give a lot of space to elements that are played by that third member uh, live, I assume. And I was kind of curious as to uh, how uh, introducing another member to the fold has impacted the recording and writing process you've brought in like guest musicians as well to fill in some of that uh space as you were calling it to um uh, talk a little bit about that sure sure so um you know for the bulk of our existence we were a two-piece um uh that changed basically just prior to our appearance at Scorched Tundra was um 
was when Ben had joined the band basically just prior to that tour. He didn't even have a Denver debut um, until after that little mini tour that we did surrounding that. But um, um, Joe, the previous drummer uh, that you would have seen with us at, at that performance, um, he and I um, had been talking about needing to add somebody else to broaden how we could write um, and perform live for quite some time. Because for me, um, yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot of easy stuff that comes with keeping a smaller band. Um, you know, the cliche that you always hear musicians talk about is like a band is, you know, if you've got a four piece band, you're talking about four individual marriages, you know, that you've got to keep track, keep track of and, and keep from going off the tracks. Um, and so fewer personalities often keeps, keeps things a little bit simpler. But I was beginning to feel limited by that from a writing perspective. And there's stuff that I had included on all of our records, basically after the first one, um, like the lap steel guitar parts, where you know I'm doing, I've, I've tuned to minor open tunings and do like kind of drones. Um, I picked this up from watching, um, God, I'm going to forget his last name, but Christoph from the band Swans. Um, he he would have these multiple different lap steels and different tunings and kind of create this echoey, eerie drone by just kind of vibrating the slide over, over whatever key he was trying to intonate. And like, I've, I've been using that trick since like, I think the, the first record it appears on came out in like 2013, I wanna say. So like, it's it's been a facet of how we've approached things in the studio for some time. But for me, um, live performance is also really paramount. Like, and being able to, carry off um, the the level of catharsis that I'm trying to go for um, in a lot of my work, um, being able to do so successfully in a live environment is um, of paramount importance. And so when I was having to sample those parts on like a pedal on my pedal board and just kind of sit there while they played out, um, um, for me, it didn't feel as though we were taking it to the full depth that we could um, and also, like when you have sampled parts, like there, um, that can be a great useful tool, um, but it doesn't leave you some of the breadth that you need for improvisation or just making each performance unique. Um, and, you know, like so, so for the record prior to this one, Ain Safar, um, I like I would perform live, and there's, there's multiple acoustic interludes. Um, and even like a, like a short little two minute song that's just me and a 12 string guitar um, um, uh, singing. Um, and like I would sample that stuff live and I'm just like, no, we, we got we to gotta figure out a way to do this and we needed to add another person. And for me, the, the biggest thing uh, there was just um, a good match of personalities. Um, I had played shows with Ben's other bands um, well prior to him joining the band. And in, in fact, um, one of our very few international performances to date um, was when um, both of our bands at the time, uh, he was playing in a grind band, um, and we were also invited to play. We were, you know, pretty firmly not grind, but I do like a lot of good grind. Um, uh, but um, we both played this fest in um, the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico, um, and like. Um, we had a we had our day off before we we would have to perform that this fest over the weekend and um, Ben and his now wife and then um, my bandmate at the time Joe and I 
um, all took a trip and like hiked up these uh, Mayan pyramids together and had this absolutely like brilliant guide who knew all of like the like goosebumps inducing esoterica and ritual practices associated with all of these different ritual chambers and like all of the, the the symbolic significance of how many steps are on the pyramid, all this stuff that I that I just fucking nerd out about. Like I love learning that kind of history, um, and also seeing some of the overlap of like how um, you know that Mayan culture was thinking about very similar ideas that I'm more familiar with from um, you know whether it's her, hermetics or or cabalistic thought there's some overlap with some of the stuff that they're talking about. And I don't mean, and I don't presume to say that I'm some scholar here and I know enough about Mayan, um, Mayan, um, the corpus of Mayan ritual work to, to authoritatively say, uh, say that I don't, um, and I don't presume to, but there's so much cool commonality in the thinking uh, from um, some of the other traditions that I'm far more familiar with that like, my mind was just like spinning from, from this experience. And I got to really know Ben um, and his, his now spouse um, well that day. And like, we realized that like, we totally got along and like, we, I remember like, we're getting back in a tour bus and like, you know, we've got like, we've got some like, like, like bad swag that like we found someplace and we're like, like, <laughs> like like absconding over to the corner of a parking lot to like like smoke a smoke and like just be like man we should jam together sometime like 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 we should jam like that would be great like we should do a band together and like i kind of in the back of my head like if i'm going full bore on a project i'm only gonna have time for one project at a time but um i'm learning now to, to multitask in covid like i don't think I'm not in a rush to to bang out the next Serpent's record because I want that to to organically become what it's going to become. Um, but anyways, where I'm going with this whole long-winded story was that that was like when I was like, I kind of knew, and this was 2016 um, or so, or maybe even 2015. Um, yeah, I think it was 2015 because we came back and then got to open um, for uh, Sleep and then the Decibel Tour, which were both pretty like, big deals for me um uh because mm -hmm. that that year's decibel tour was converge and paul bearer and valenfire um mm -hmm. three bands that i you know i have a lot of respect for anyways that's how i remember the date and that's how i met ben initially and knew that i could jam with him he's played he's typically a guitarist like his his primary other project is a band called night wraith that's kind of like he he has great guttural vocals and he's a brilliant death metal guitarist um and uh, like he probably first and foremost considers himself a guitarist, but the first band that I saw him perform in was a, a band that when Serpents was just kind of uh, beginning our journey um, or when we were beginning our journey, um, uh, I, we played with this band Black Sleep Akali um, that he was in and playing bass in at the time several times. And so I kind of knew in the back of my head that the guy could be a, a decent bass player, but also that he's a good Renaissance man sort of player. And even though he'd never played lap steel before, and I think initially when I told him, I'm like, you're going to need to play lap steel live and figure out a way to do it while playing bass. I think he initially was like, what the fuck, man? I've never played that. I don't play open tunings. <laughs> like, um, um, like, like, but I'll give it a shot. You know, like he, um, he's totally come up with this like great, cool technique 
So where I'm going with all this is Ben's an extraordinarily versatile player, and I knew that he'd be able to pick up the lap steel facets that had been on our recordings, as well as holding down the bass end. And he's come up with a technique where he'll be sliding into his, or hammering hard into his bass riff lines that allows him to still intonate his bass lines while playing the lap steel live. Um, so it's it's really cool and like it's been uh, awesome to like have him in the band and kind of with that uh, JP our, our drummer on this record has been an absolutely wonderful addition as well. Um, he's a guy who's played in a million other like far more grindy fast bands as far as drumming is concerned. Um, He's in the band Vermin Womb with Ethan from Primitive Man. Um, he was in a, a, another band um, with Ethan called Clinging to the Trees of a Forest Fire that like has, when, when our band was kind of starting out, they were to me, in my eyes, they were like a visceral grindcore institution in Denver. Um, and I'd been seeing JP just like rip these insane polyrhythmic um, stop on a dime blasting techniques you know um for years and years and he also lives in the, the or for years he's since moved to a different neighborhood but he lives in the same neighborhood as me so i'd bump into him at bars and restaurants we always be you know a few sheets too too much to the wind to actually like confidently articulate articulate ourselves but we'd always be like oh man we gotta fucking jam sometime like you live we live in the same neighborhood like let's fucking jam and then so basically right after uh, we played scorched tundra and and met met you guys um uh joe um the our then drummer who would have been performing on that festival he um like his his son was just having was had, had just arrived on the, on the scene and he was basically like you know like like um juggling this and fatherhood and a full-time job like he he just basically felt like he he didn't necessarily have the full energy to give to it that he wanted and so he left on amicable terms um and you know with within a a, a week or two i had contacted jp just kind of having had this had him in the back of my mind um as like i knew he'd be a good fit personality wise um he's a really jovial like rad like funny person um and he also has ripping chops as a drummer like um so it, it really just kind of worked out and came together with the personnel that's on this record the people that like i have immense respect for as musicians i would both consider i would consider them both like on a different tier skill wise than myself um and the the cliche that people always banty about in music is like if you want to get better play with fucking better musicians um and so i think to some capacity um yeah, like like you know, most of the, the the concepts and the riffs and stuff like initially come come from me, but being able to bounce them off and workshop them with with brilliant players such as themselves um, has I think elevated my game and helped me to really bring out a lot of the things that I've I've wanted to articulate musically in the past, but maybe haven't haven't really fully fully realized um and it's not to say that that um you know any of the other drummers that i've played with previously were like a limiting factor in that um but the whole thing of being a a, a three-piece and having people that have both played in a million bands have toured way more than i have you know and and know um what it's like to be a touring road musician 
um, and how difficult and unglamorous that the reality of that is was when you're talking about underground fucking heavy metal. I don't know. So many people have these ideas of like, oh, like you play one big show and you're like going to be gallivanting around the fucking world in a tour bus and a <laughs> private jet. Like, uh, not my, not in my experience, like Iron Maiden, we are not, um, like, mm-hmm. um, like, so it's, it's been, I think it, like having these dudes, uh, to work with and play with has, has really, really pushed me. And I think for the better. And while I, I love Lux and I think it's our strongest artistic statement yet, I can't wait to leave it in the dust with whatever we do next. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I was going to, you led into my next question pretty well. And that is, uh, I noticed a little bit of like uh, some new elements into the music variation and tempo, for example. And I thought ahead of time that that could be attributed to new members coming in. Oftentimes, it requires a new personality involved, not that their skill, um, not that there's anything any issue with the skill of previous members but sometimes it just requires a new person to be on the scene for you to feel confident about bringing an idea out Mm -hmm. um or especially if they come from a band where they're executing that regularly um you can say hey i want you to play blast play bass blast beats for the last one minute of this song yeah (laughs) the other thing i think about too is you know you before this record you were always writing knowing you were a two-piece live and um for me when i was writing knowing it was going to be a two-piece i fiercely limited myself in the writing because i wanted to be able to do everything you know i didn't i didn't want to be sampling anything um so did you find more liberty in in knowing you'll have a backup person now when you that, went into writing this? Absolutely. And that's that's part of why we had been threatening to do so ages ago. Like like we had jammed with some other friends that we have around town and just like played with the notion of 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 mixing things up from just the standard two piece that we had done for so long really as early as like like i think basically right after um our previous record and Far came out like we were talking about doing that like as soon as that was out and in the world we were like okay it's time um and you know it's at the, at the same time like i love what playing as a two-piece had taught me um for doing that for so long and with that, you know, I, I'm, I'm one of these guys with just a ridiculous signal path um, and <laughs> far more amplifiers than, than a single player should be bringing to any given show, particularly ones where I'm like playing like 100 and 200 cap rooms, like, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> like, um, um, uh, but that, that dynamic of having more diversity in my backline from trying to fill more space is really taught me a lot about like what I look for and appreciate in guitar tone um, and just musically. We uh, So when I first started thinking about really doing this was um, we had added, I, I, I was originally, so for the first two, for the first record, I was basically just playing through a full stack um, of 412s with a hundred watt head and that was it. By the time we got to the second record, I had added a full bass cab with a 300 watt bass head um, pushing that and had begun to experiment with dropping part of our signal down using an octave effect 
um, mm -hmm. but not not the whole signal um, because that doesn't track really well um, and can can sound weird. Um, but um, when I really really started thinking about um, pushing beyond just even like you know mimicking the rigs of having both a bass player and a guitar player was um, we opened for Neurosis in like 2014, so ages ago at this point. Um, but it was a it was a flyout one-off show for them where they had a rented backline, but still brought cer certain elements to get their their signal chain down. I don't know if you've ever like looked at like what Steve Von Till's doing from a signal path, but like you you can find rig rundowns where he calls his signal path like the the rig of death or something like that, like uh -huh. because he's just he's splitting it off in stereo and all these different um, ways and. You know, running through a, you know a really high gain Mesa head for some some parts of the crunch, but then also running through Fender Twins for the more shimmery, um, I guess, like lighter parts of his tone. Um, and I, that's like when I got to see the rigs that they were messing with firsthand, um, just when we opened for Neurosis, that was when I really started to think about fucking around with my signal path a lot more. I noticed another thing that that both. Um, at least for this flyout gig, I can't speak for their day-to-day -day rigs. What both um, Scott Kelly and Steve Von Till were doing from a guitar perspective was using 300-watt Ampeg bass heads and uh, basically taking over those their, the signal um, for the preamp section in those heads with, with um, high-gain tube uh, preamp pedals. Um, so basically just using them as 120-pound uh, 300 watt tube power sections for these these heads, and then Jesus. just running these these pedals into it. Um, that that's wild. Yeah, and so so I've been doing something similar for quite some time. I'm still kind of always playing with my my signal path, but from an amp perspective, I'm pretty firmly arrived at like 300 watt bass rig, 300 watt guitar rig, and um, 135 watt Fender Twin for cleans, and I'm diming it so my cleans are still basically louder than hell and far more broken up than a typical clean tone that you might, you might um, uh, get from somebody. And for people who are not musicians out there, basically um, I'm, I'm doing for, for the dirty or like the, the heavy parts of my songs, I've got a full bass rig and a full guitar rig for the clean parts of the songs. I've got an amp that's typically used for very bright clean tones, but it's it's one of the least sought after versions because it gets dirty and you have to, it's one of the loudest fucking Fender Twins they ever made from the late 70s. Most Fender Twins are like 80 to 100 watts. There's a million different versions of them. This version is 135 watts and to get it to break up, you have to crank it. And I want that sort of maximum volume yields maximum results. Uh, sort of thing. Uh, I probably encountered Sun at Too Impressionable in an age uh, when I was just beginning to think about how, how my, I would approach live sound. Um, but um, basically I have a very weird signal path and I've gotten so used to it by virtue of having used it for so long as a two-piece that even though it's kind of ridiculous to do it now as a three-piece, I still am kind of stuck on this tone perspective because I've learned so much from playing with it and I, I've learned how to to just really like really kind of like uh, reach for what I would describe as a very cathartic heavy sound um, that when when I want to, to do that 
um, I know how to do so through this ridiculously over the top rig uh, pretty pretty easily. So even though um, my knees uh, and back uh, probably think it's pretty foolhardy every time I have to load the shit in and out of uh, or up and down some stairs, um, it's a sound that I'm pretty firmly um, stuck on at this point. And I don't know that I'll, I'll make any drastic changes other than on the pedal board. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to translating that to a record, how do you approach that with a producer? Is there a <laughs> lot of back and forth with them? Or do you, I mean, ultimately at the end of the day, because you are a, an independent band, you have the say, right? Yeah. But do you find you run into conflict with producers when it comes to time to put things to a, a record and put it on tape, so to speak? I wouldn't say I run into conflict. Um, I generally try to be pretty diplomatic with any technical um, people that we work with. Like, I I hate it when we go to open a show for some bigger band and, you know, people that I know in the local industry that are like working that show, um, you know, are having to bristle up against, you know, larger than life egos that mistreat them. Um, so I generally, generally try to be very diplomatic with, with any technical staff that I'm working with. Um, but yeah, it does present its challenges. Like um, with such an incredibly loud rig, for example, um, that can be difficult if I wanted to track live because unless you've got really good isolation rooms for, you know, my, um, you know, jet engine Kevin Shields loveless rig thing going over on over here like um like that there's going to be a ton of bleed in the recording like um that you don't want on say like you don't want your your drum mics on all the cymbals picking up just constant like feedback you know like mm -hmm. um so it does pose challenges but like um the last like four things we've recorded is it four or yeah, it's the last four, uh, yeah, four, because there's a single in there, one EP and two LPs. Uh, we've done with with uh, Dave Otero, who's no stranger to recording heavy bands. You know, um, he kind of cut his teeth recording Cephalic Carnage uh, in the 90s. Um, um, they, they're, they're a Denver band. Um, and so that was kind of like some of the first stuff he got known for. Um, he hasn't done as much like doom stuff, like, like on our end of the spectrum, but that's not to say that he hasn't done it because he's done most of, as far as I know, I think most of what primitive man's released, um, not everything I don't believe. Um, but, um, suffice it to say, he knows, he knows how to handle heavy, heavy musicians and, uh, potentially, uh, stubborn approaches to, um, our, uh, our, our, our music. He joked with me on this record was the, the first time. So we tuned everything to um, A at 432 um, for this record, which is um, basically, yeah, eight hertz flat of where everybody else tunes to. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and it's said, and I don't profess to, to be an authority on this, um, but I find it, the, the idea of it interesting, but that the, that, a at 432 is the resonant frequency of like all of manifest creation of like the fucking universe. Um, and again, I don't, I don't profess to know, to know if that's actually true or not, but I, I told that to, um, to Dave Otero when we were recording and, you know, I've got all these special tuners that'll allow me to actually do that and do so effectively. 
but um we're we're like trying to get um guitar tones and like and he's trying to get like scratch tracks and shit and my guitar is just like feeding back and he's like you had to just go pick the fucking resonant frequency of fucking everything didn't you like everything in my fucking studio is just rattling away with like like you had to like like everything in the fucking place is vibrating like and i got train tracks outside of my fucking studio that do less for fucking recordings than this shit it's he was you know very funny about it but um yeah that would that would be an example of like us kind of like like uh like you know like I can make some concessions in, you know, not having to dime 300 watt amps, you know, perhaps when we're getting studio tones and like everything's feeding back so horribly that it's just like, it all just sounds like, like, um, the beginning of every I hate God song, you know, just ah! like, um, mm-hmm. um <laughs> but, yeah. how do you, uh, Oh, sorry. How do you find your sound and build a thread between, all of these kinds of variables that you've discussed, um, whether it's instruments, whether it's the the gear um, or new members. And has this, the sound that you found here uh, different than what you've created in the past? Yeah, I mean, definitely. And that's, so it's, I'll, I'll kind of, Again, I'll try and be succinct in that, but I can give you an example from this record that would be front to back creative process on how I arrived at something. And, you know, whether we're talking thematic elements, the decision to include certain personnel in it, et cetera. Um, all of this stuff is, 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 can be something that I have kind of constantly brewing when I'm working on um, a record. And I like to, to, to say, um, you know, obviously when we're like hit with the, like these lightning flashes of inspiration, that can be really cool and empowering feeling um, when, you know, like you wake up from a dream and you got a song fully formed, um, you know, and a riff and you like get up and you like have to immediately play it because like otherwise it's going to be gone, you know. Um, and that's sometimes my creative process. And I do have that where like I, I might be in meditation or something and like, I, I break out of it because I got a, like a full song. I got to get down on paper. Um, uh, and that's, that's not always how it works though. The muse, sometimes you got to go looking for the muse, especially during a fucking apocalypse. Um, you know, so you have to, you have to go work on things. You can't always just wait for it to, you know, come arrive fully formed in a fucking dream. You know, like I don't take enough acid for that and don't have the luxury, uh, uh, to, to, to make that my creative process. Um, but I'll, so I'll give you an example. Um, the song Scales of Mott on our new record um, is one that the riff is something that I've had for a while. Like um, the riff for the front end of the song um, is something that's been in my back pocket for, we almost recorded it um, for the previous record and so far. Um, but I didn't really fully realize that into the song that I wanted it to be until Ben and JP had had joined the band. Um, and the riff has this this melody that's like boom da 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 and uh, I knew I could hear in my head almost like like an almost like dancey or like like down tempo black metal sort of beat that step 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 like I could hear that in my in my head um, um, that that would fit that riff really well. Um, and I knew thematically, um, 
that a certain subject matter that I wanted to play with was this sort of this notion of 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 how how one's how one goes through life and and how they attempt to live a just life um and that that relates to in in Egyptian mythology again something I don't profess to be an expert on but am interested in at least in some capacity um Mott is the this goddess of 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 justice it could be said like like a lot of traditions that try and tie these ideas to the tarot um assign the goddess Mott to the the tarot arcana justice that's usually lady justice standing in front of some scales um and uh, in Egyptian mythology, your heart is weighed against a feather, and have if you'd lived a, a just, um, pure life um, in accordance with their tradition, your heart would be lighter than the feather, um, and you know you wouldn't be cast into the abyss, or, or like you would be allowed to to enter their version of the afterlife, right? Um, and so I was thinking about that, like with all of this fucked up shit happening in the world. It's like, how does one comport themselves in a way that that is honest and just um, and still accounts for, you know, the some of the, the abject horrors of, or of our present reality? Um, and, you know, mind you, we, we laid all this down in um, in August of 2019, right? Um, and uh, I knew that the second half of this song was going to be a funeral dirge. Um, that kind of takes us through the process of that. So the front half has this sort of see part that gets you to these questions of how one lives a, a just life and how one comports themselves. How do, how do, how do we do that? Um, and then I knew it needed to break into a dirge, but the first, the lyrics for the first half of the song are, would you be a force which uh, liberates? Do you wish to fight for that? That's right. Or do you wish to hide behind the knife to ingratiate yourself with profane might? Right. Um, and basically saying like, like, are you going to, to live in a just, just way, or are you going to try and just align yourself with, with power and, um, you know, like malevolence, um, it, that's basically the question that I'm posing there. And this is like before all of the riots of this year and all of this other stuff that, it, that I think in retrospect, I, it's not. I'm not saying that I was writing about these ideas. I was writing about civil unrest to a cer certain degree, but I was thinking about it from an esoteric perspective of this exploration of the death process. Um, we go into the studio, and I knew that the dirge needed to happen too. And um, without going into too much personal detail, um, we lost a close family member basically to the hour um, that we wrapped recording. Um, um, like I didn't know it at the time. I learned later that night. So all of these themes of life and death and going through um, the, the realities of, of what they can mean in one's personal life and, you know, broader societally and esoterically, you know, um, in terms of mythos and, or, or just different esoteric traditions. Um, but I knew that I wanted to get like a really heavy, heavy, like grim dirge part that, that, would be compatible with this sort of like death process idea um, with the second half of the song, where we really drop tempo from this like sort of upbeat, dancey thing and just slow it down to, you know, a fraction of the beats per minute. Um, mm -hmm. And um, 
So, so again, this, if I can be long-winded here, so I'm, I'm going to try and wrap all these threads together in a way that makes some semblance of sense. But um, about four years ago, or five was when I actually recorded it, but um, our friends in the band Chemist had me guest on a song of theirs called Three Gates from their album uh, Hunted, where like they knew I could do a kind of like throaty, shouted, um, like Matt Pipe by way of Lemmy sort of, I wake in the perfect hell, sort of like, like growl type thing. I can do that pretty well. What I can't do is a, totally guttural growl um and so so anyways with the chemist story i had the experience of playing on their record it was really fun that ended up being a record that like got named decibels album of the year and they got to do all this awesome touring um and it like part of what's been really cool about the denver scene is that nobody's trying to sound like anybody else and it's fostered this sort of collaborative element and so when i got to see and having participated in that, and again, I'm not trying to claim any ownership or, or uh, like any credit for them having written a dope song. I just sang on the sucker, like. Um, um, but it was really cool to see this this um, this record really taken new heights and see see your friends um, have success. Because I'm I'm of the opinion that there's you know there's there's room enough in the musical underground table for us all. Like I, I want us all to mutually flourish. Um, there, and I, I have friends in other scenes in other towns that say that, you know, that there's all this backbiting where it's like somebody just gets an opening slot on a big show or something and like all of a sudden their buddies are like, fuck that band. Like, and yeah. that sort of backbiting bullshit is something that we don't really abide here. At least like the people that feel that way and act that way that I've observed in the Denver scene don't, generally don't stick around it for very long. But it's yeah. a small community and it's pretty insular. We all know each other. And I knew that this dirgy part needed some some vocals that I couldn't do and what I had in my head was if you recall like early deicide stuff he'd always double their vocals so there'd be the guttural and then like a screeched like 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 I guess more black metal-y kind of like ah! and so like on the early deicide stuff like he'd do the guttural would be like and then like he'd get the like like over the top right so I thought that was that, iconic yeah 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 like, I thought that that could be a fucking cool dynamic to play with and also allow myself to bring in some buddies who can do both of those vocal styles infinitely better than I can. So I knew that Ethan would be perfect for the low end of that vocal. Um, Ethan from Primitive Man for, uh, I'm, yeah, I need to explain these things, <laughs> I recall. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know that I do, though, because Primitive Man's infinitely more popular than we are and well-known. So, like, you should know e Primitive, e Primitive Man, and you should know Ethan. Just what, just what I'm just saying. Um, <laughs> but uh, um, anyways, he um, he was perfect for the low guttural vocal. And Ben, um, like, in Chemist and his other band, Glacial Tomb, does a wonderful, like, shriek, ah! sort of like throaty like hissed like like sort of vocal and I wanted to double them up on the dirge part um um and basically the way that that happened was you know I'd recorded all the we'd recorded all the music and I was I was the last one in the studio still doing vocals when they came in um but um I laid down a scratch track just kind of giving them the cadence for the last part because they were going to have to match each other um, but the lyrics for that one are basically, um, when uh, we're gone, we'll be consumed by the maw of the void. Um, will we have been worthy vessels for the light of the all? Um, and so 
I came in and just laid down how like that was going to work cadence wise, just like, when we're gone, like, so that they had the, the rhythm of it and the meter of it. But then they just each did their own approaches on it. And I got to say, like, they're, they were like, both those dudes are pro as fuck when it comes to laying down vocals because they were both in and out of the studio in like, like 30 minutes. Um, like, I think we used Ethan's first take on everything. Um, and I think like there was maybe one thing where like um, Ben had to hold like, like one breath a little longer because like it was such a long note that like Ethan had done where it was just <gasps> You know, and like that was it. Like, um, um, but that, anyways, this, this is a long winded way of saying that there's a lot of shit that goes into how I creatively think about any given project and any given song and how it fits into the broader context of a record. But then there's always elements that creatively I don't necessarily have say over. And I don't realize that, like, you know, all of the themes about like death process shit and all of the things that, that were going into the song were going to be a lot more immediately relevant to our, our lived experience. Um, and, um, yeah, that's, that's the really fun thing for me about creating, um, is I, I, and I think that we're all fundamentally that humans as, as a species, human beings are fundamentally creative creatures. And, you know, it, it's easy, like, like to see, I, I guess when you have like, like, like when your creative pursuits are more of like a typical thing, like, like painting or creating art or, or music or whatever, like people presume that that's like the one way that people can be creative. But I, f I fundamentally believe that everybody has a, a form of creative expression and can be artful at how they pursue things. And like, that might be artfully talking about beer or podcasting. Like, like if you do your creative pursuit artfully, um, I think there's, there's an honesty and a purity to that, that like that everybody is capable of creating, of doing so of, of creating basically. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's easy to, to see how that applies to something like making music. But um, for me, just engaging with that creative process and seeing all of the multitudes of things that can, work themselves into art from your lived experience and otherwise um, can be inspiring and then sometimes a little bit fucking scary. Um, <laughs> but, yeah. But yeah. Uh, to, to, let's talk, uh, speaking of kind of different artistic facets, um, what of the, uh, the artwork for the album? I know that you get involved in some cases with, obviously with the, um, with the content of the artwork, um, uh, how involved were you in the, in the production of the artwork, uh, for this album? Um, and I know that you do lots of different pressings and stuff like that, uh, yeah. for, for your records too. Can you shed a little light on that? Totally. Um, so the, the cover art, I guess I'll start with the cover art there. Um, we had worked with this local artist on like one other t-shirt design and then like a hoodie design ages ago, but she's a wonderfully wonderfully talented pen and ink artist by the name of Christina Hunt. Um, I think on Instagram, she goes by like Solar Coven or it's either Solar Coven or Heavy Metal Talisman. Um, but you can check out her work. She does dope shit. Um, she's, um, she's done all of the artwork for Cloudcatcher, um, if you know that band from Denver. 
Um, she's done, she did a tour poster for the obsessed, um, but like really like crazy detailed pen and ink, um, work. And so a big part of like, when I, when I work with, with, um, artists on coming up with the aesthetics of something, that's a really fun part of this whole project for me, because like I do some visual art, like I do printmaking, um, and, but like, like I don't have like, so when we talk about people being artful at things, like, like my, my go-to form of expression is not visual art. Right. Um, and I can come up with these ideas and work on them. But for me, like, like something like printmaking is iterative enough that I can work on and carve a block and keep working at it over and over again until I get it to be what I need it to be. But like, I couldn't just pen and ink, sit down and draw something as stunning as like what Christina did for our, um, our, our album cover. So for me, a huge, huge part of the fun is getting to work with, with visual artists who are like well beyond my talent in that capacity and like kind of giving them some of the ideas of what I generally have envisioned in my head, but giving them a degree of, of uh, sort of chef's choice, as they say, um, um, to let them do their thing. Um, and, you know, this can be an iterative process where like, you know, I might say, you know, hey, I like this part about it, or I like this font uh, choice that you've done. Um, can we maybe tweak one or two things? But like, she she came up with that based on, I told her some of the thematic um, ideas behind the record and how light as an esoteric um, concept was worked into it and how it related to my daughter. And I basically told her that I want you to do your version of the sun arcana of the tarot. Um, um, but with our cross insignia um, um, in in the center. Um, and however else you want to express that um, is kind of up to you, but like note that we're playing with qualities of light a lot and that like, I want you to basically come up with the solar motif. Um, and so she came back with what that cover ended up being. And like, I had very few tweaks and she didn't even like, so, okay, so our previous record plays with Kabbalistic um, ideas quite a bit uh, more directly than this record does, but I'm, I'm very much interested in Kabbalah and um, all of the different ideas that come out of the various permutations of, of that um, uh, many, many winged branch of esoterica. Um, and I, I'm kind of being facetious there because when I say many winged, there's um, a image um, in, in uh, the, it's, like the vision of Ezekiel where he sees a biblical angel and it's known as the Ophanim um, or the Merkaba, um, uh, which is basically, a, it's described as a wheel within a wheel that's comprised of eyes and wings. So like <laughs> biblical angels are kind of <laughs> fucking terrifying. Um, so, so yeah, when I said the many winged um, branch of, uh, of that, this part of esoteric discipline, that was a bit of a play on the Ophanim, but on our previous record, Ain't Soft Hour, I wrote a song called Merkaba, and there's a a, a rendering of a, an, an, I guess, how, how you might geometrically render a uh, Merkaba as it's been kind of done in various uh, approaches to trying to articulate this. There's a there's a Merkaba on the back of our previous record, or an Ophanum, if you will. And so she came up with this wheel of eyes that was totally playing with the Ophanum from the vision of Ezekiel. Um, um, and like, like unprovoked 
for me. <laughs> and I'm like, hey, it's, uh, it's, it's oddly prescient that you have chosen this imagery because did you see this song on our previous record or did you see this, this back cover on our previous record? Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's wonderfully, I, I suppose, on brand for the, the sorts of esoterica that we play with. So she kind of nailed that part and did it out of the park. Um, as far as like the, the other parts of the release go, um, I always like to do kind of a diehard edition that I get intimately involved with um, in terms of like having my hands on it. This is something that I think is just kind of a, a vestige of me always having a lot of respect for these DIY projects and DIY musicians who would, you know, you know, package their own stuff, come up with their, their own aesthetics and, you know, put their personal touches on it. Um, I, th I think that that can be a really compelling way to, to create and put out art. Um, so I did um, an edition of a hundred block prints of a, um, a solar image again with our cross in the middle of it, but gold on black mat um, stock. That's another, again, playing with another Kabbalistic idea. It's a 72 uh, rayed sun um, and 72 is, is a very, um, it's, it's a good number, let's just say, um, from the, the numerological practice that comes from Kabbalistic thought called gematria. Um, and basically, um, gematria is, you, you can assign a, a number to every letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and thus, um, as a language, um, it could be considered both a language and a, and a form of mathematics, right? And uh, there's a passage in the Torah that has these, a series of 72 three-letter names um, that are all consecutive. And Kabbalists have always picked up on that. And there's, it, it's called, the, the shorthand name for, for this 72-fold name of God is called the Shem HaMefarash. Um, um, but it's basically a nod to the 72-fold um, ineffable, unpronounceable name of, of whatever divinity happens to be. And uh, I know in heavy metal, a lot of people in particular in the U.S. have had bad experiences growing up with like really kind of fucked up versions of religion um, in their personal lives. So I am kind of cognizant of that. And I don't mean to, to you know, banty about the, the big old, the capital G God term too much, because I know a lot of people can bristle at it from their lived experience and you know, some of the, the various forms of bigotry that have come from um, religious upbringing. I, I'm not, I'm not casting um, any aspersions on any religions here or saying that any faith is better than another, but uh, these are all ideas that I, I try to work into the esoteric approach to our artwork. Um, anyways, uh, that's what that art, that print was. We also did a patch of that same solar motif um, the 72 fold sun, and then, um, a little medallion, um, that like, we just had the, the, the shop that does all of like our enamel pins and stuff, just do these medallions of that same sun design. You covered, uh, a, a good amount of what we wanted to talk about with the rig, which is awesome. Um, and you, uh, again, drove us right into kind of where I wanted to head, which is, uh, about this DIY and, uh, element to what you do, which is a something you're very proud of, clearly, um, and that you find to be um, really, really important. And every album's been self-released. And I wanted to know, 
why you felt as though that was an important thing. It's something you highlight in the press. And I wanted to know if you had had conversations with other labels, with labels, and if that was something that had been on the table um, in the past. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not anti-label um, altogether, but like, let's just say like the DIY punk scene made a pretty, um, pretty strong impact on me in my form, my formative years. And like, um, you know, seeing stuff like the, the reverse side of a dead Kennedy's cassette that says like home taping is destroying the record industry here. You can help them. We left the side blank. Um, like, you know, I remember seeing that yeah. as, as like a teenager and being like, ah, oh, that's punk as fuck. Um, and like, I'm not, but I, with that being said, like, you know, looking at like discord, um, or all these different labels where these punk bands were pretty adamant about just like getting out there and doing their, their stuff, you know, regardless of whether or not like some label was going to come calling. That's always been ins- inspirational to me. Um, another favorite band of mine is dead moon. Um, um, so Fred and Tootie Cole, of course, I'm sure, you know, like the dude bought a record lathe and like was cutting his own masters. And like, so if you've mm-hmm. got a dead, if you got a dead moon record where there's like a little wobble on one of the songs, you'd be like, oh, it's because like Fred specifically, Fred Cole specifically cut that record. And like, like that, that little, that little wobble in, in the master is because like that dude, like did every every facet of, of like putting Dead Moon's shit out, you know, or they, they collectively, the whole band did. Um, but that sort of DIY ethic has always been really inspiring to me. And I've definitely taken some, some pages from that, that, uh, broader book, uh, should we say? Um, Mm -hmm. and, uh, like with that said, you know, like I obviously like want to, um, you know, get my, my artistic ideas out there and, um, like I'm not anti, um, success. There's another, there's another thing that, you know, is, is that can be a, a tricky part of like, of like the, the DIY punk, um, sort of ethic is that it can, um, you know, this, this notion that, that if you sell X amount of records or greater, you're, you're instantly a sellout is that can be an unhelpful one. And it's often an accurate one, you know, like, like when you're looking at like certain bands, like just wanting, not giving a fuck about the art of their, 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 um, their endeavors, uh, and really just wanting to just, you know, be, you know, king shit of whatever fuck mountain. Um, like, um, like there's, there's something to be said that there certainly are personalities like that, that care more about the, like, um, you know, making money or being famous or, or there are people that I've met and I'm not casting any aspersions, um, to anybody specifically, but it's an archetype when you meet certain people who give more of a shit about the perception of being in a band than, than what music that they might put out in being in a band, you know, like, like people who, who like the idea of being in a band more than they like the idea of, of trying to create art. Right. And, Mm-hmm. No shade on on people who who you know might have that perspective, but I, I'm more drawn to art that's created by people that want to make the art the strongest first and foremost. Um, that said, with your question about like labels, I'm literally talking to um, a label right now about getting global distribution, and so I'm not averse to it. Um, there's some plans in the works with uh, um, uh, Hammerheart Petrichor. Um, 
uh, out of the Netherlands, um, uh, where should all go well, we should be in record stores, you know, globally uh, at some point here. And so I'm not anti that. Um, and this is this has been part of the challenge of being fiercely DIY for you know the nine years of the band's nine years going on. In January, it'll be our tenth anniversary as a band. Um, um, and like, there's well, well, there's a lot of merit to the DIY ethic. Like, I don't know how to get our shit distributed worldwide. And so, if you've ever bought an In the Company of Serpents record in a record store, it's because I physically dropped it off there or somebody just sold their fucking copy of our shit. Um, mm -hmm. Because um, unless you've basically picked it up uh, at a record store in Denver or like a record store that we stopped off at on tour, like um, we don't have distribution other than like you buy a record from me and I fulfill it on Bandcamp, you know? Um, uh, and I've personally done that like for the, the entirety of the band's existence but like at this stage juggling you know um full full-time parental duties and full-time career duties and full-time everything else that comes with like growing up and, and like living one's life like i don't know that that being ardently like like diy about doing our merch fulfillment when i'm like it that might mean that our merch fulfillment takes like three weeks to get a package out you know like um, like I'm not anti, um, um, you know, having our stuff distributed. And like I said, like, hopefully we'll be in record stores globally soon here. Um, but yeah, I've, I definitely have a strong, strong appreciation of the DIY punk, um, ethic. Um, it's been hugely influential for me, um, like as a kid growing up through like, you know, growing up and creating my own music. Um, it's, uh, it's definitely, it's informed part of how uh, I've made certain choices for the band, but like, I'm, I'm, I'm not a per opposed to like having our shit be available in a record store where like, mm -hmm. instead of like, you know, like right now, and there's, there's talk of like new taxes coming into play um, for like, if I want to sell stuff to the UK next year. Um, I have to like register and prepay VAT taxes with the, like the UK authorities. So like, mm -hmm. like, um, yo, like that's a whole lot of pain in the ass. Not to mention it makes it expensive as hell for somebody who wants to get our record in the EU or the UK. Um, uh, like these prohibitive shipping costs for me to send, if, for me to send one CD from Denver to say um, uh, Netherlands or Sweden, wherever, that can cost me 18 to 25 bucks depending upon where it's going and how like remote the destination it is. And that's a CD that I might sell for five to $10, depending upon which, which release it is and what kind of, how intensive the packaging was, you know, like, or like, yeah. if I want to send, like, here's the other thing too, is like, like we've, part of that DIY ethic has, has also been something that, like I've always released our stuff in very limited quantities. Like the the pressing for this record is um, for LPs is 100 of the deluxe variant and and 200 of the other variant. So we've only got a handful of copies left. And like uh, because we're printing in so much small, smaller quantities, like our margins are already like <laughs> like mm -hmm. like I'm not mm -hmm. making the big bucks selling the fucking you know 300 slabs of wax I've pressed for this thing. Like it's and there's, there's something to be said about like, like, because I've not relied on this as like, like my 
my primary form of income, it's given me some creative freedom to do whatever the fuck I want with it. So like, that's, that's definitely been part of my attitude in, in self-releasing stuff. Um, you know, but at the same time, like, like I said, like, I don't want to pay 50 bucks an LP to just to have it shipped to, uh, overseas. And I don't want to force our fans who want to get our physical products, um, you know, um, in hand in, you know, across the planet from me, um, to have to spend a small fortune to do so, you know, and okay. I think you guys are all like, you know, Alexi, I can see you have a formidable LP collection behind you. Um, there's something to be said about like holding the physical product in your hand and, and like having that experience of like listening to a record front to back that you don't get from seeing, you know, a two inch square on Spotify. Right. And so, yeah, long winded as usual, but Absol like, no, but I yeah. think it makes sense. <laughs> and I think that approaching, <coughs> how you operate as a band from the DIY perspective can enable you to understand all of these aspects of what it means to run a business as a band too. And I think ultimately the longer you do that, the more enriched your decision-making becomes about what a partnership looks like in the future too. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think then you can actually work with someone in a way that's going to be beneficial for you. And that's not going to be a waste of their time either. Um, and so that's when, especially because things like digital distribution are so streamlined in comparison to when I remember, you know, our label starting digital distribution, we were one of the first, I think we were the first American label on Spotify because we had a connection directly with the company in yeah. 2005 or 2006. And so managing all of these relationships is now streamlined and it's easier for bands to actually handle uh, all of that and to, fo to focus on the larger question, which is like, what does physical distribution looks like? Because that's what's the most expensive. And that's arguably what people kind of want uh, out of the band is they want LPs and they want compact discs or cassettes, um, you know, yeah. T-shirts, all, like, all, all the that above. stuff. Like, yeah. um, sorry, I'm totally cutting you off. Finish your thought. No, that, that is, uh, but I think that, um, ultimately getting to know all of those aspects of your band as a business beyond just, uh, making the music is super important in order to uh to grow you, you you're you're not going to grow necessarily just by signing with a band and then making music and hoping that they make the right decisions with the syndication of your music like yeah. knowing what that syndication actually looks like is um is super important for uh, your understanding of what your relationship can be with a label and also for accountability too. Yeah, totally. And there's, you know, I, I, um, like I said earlier, like, like when dealing with anybody, um, in a technical capacity in the music industry, I, I always try and be like very diplomatic because it can be there. There are a lot of thankless jobs in the metal underground. <laughs> like, you know what mm -hmm. I'm saying? Like, um, and, uh, uh, I, I think I try to carry that into like what conversations I have had with, with um, labels as well. But like, like I said earlier, like I believe in mutual flourishing, like, like I want us all to do better, like, like, mm -hmm. especially during such a like fucked up, like 
like global pandemic, like apocalyptic time, you know, like, like, yeah, like, like I want us all to thrive and flourish. And so that's, that's kind of like another part of the ethic that I, that I would apply to business dealings is, um, you know, I obviously don't want to be a, a, a rube or a mark when it comes to like contract law, but I don't profess to know much about contract law. Um, and, but like when, when, when like a deal is potentially in front of me, like I'm, I'm trying to be generally like, like diplomatic, but then also have an eye to, you know, what's, you know, what, what's going to be, um, a mutually beneficial arrangement, um, for all, all parties involved, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's wrap on, uh, with a little bit of beverage, um, <laughs> What what are you drinking, Grant? So um, this is oh, uh, well, what I was what I was drinking. I've since finished it. I might need to grab a fresh one here for for uh, the sake of further discussion. But this is <laughs> mm-hmm. called uh, Living Ruins from True. This is from one of their um, their sours from what they call their Acid Temple. Um, it says it's a mixed culture foyer saison, um, and. Just a little little shout out to my buddy Zach, who's the the head brewer at at True. Um, you also know him from uh, uh, sitting behind the kit in Chemists and Black Curse. Um, uh, he's a wonderfully talented dude who has like tried to make all of True's beers um, really focused on like like local quality ingredients um, and just you know putting out like artful beer. <laughs> if we want to talk about like how you can apply art to all kinds of things, there's definitely an artful, artful approach to uh, making good hooch. <laughs> mm-hmm. Absolutely. I, I think uh, Colorado has also been one of those places that's really far ahead generally in the craft beer, in the development of craft beer in America. And uh, True is definitely one of the breweries that, uh, they were very early in that market for doing mixed fermentation, um, more like uh, Belgio American inspired sour beers, and uh, the the artwork is great, and the liquid's really tasty. Yeah, um, they they were yeah. instrumental in getting me like turned on to to um, sours and just you know like mixed culture beers um, in the first place. Like like I had tried a lot of sours um, just by virtue of the fact like before I even started uh, Serpents as a band, I was living and working in downtown Denver. um, And I had a job that's right around the corner from like one of the best beer bars for my money in the country, um, Falling Rock Tap House. They're literally Mm -hmm. like a half a block away from Coors Field and like their motto and stickers all over the fucking place is no crap on tap. Like you can throw mm-hmm. a rock and hit fucking Coors Field there, but you cannot buy a Coors draft at this place. <laughs> fucking 100 fucking taps. Uh, and um, so I, I've, I've, you know, I've tried to avail myself of some of the, the better beer resources uh, we have here in Denver and try a bunch of different stuff. Um, but like they were like some of the first sours I got into um, were, were true ones because some of the sours that I would try and like no shade on, on like this approach to sours, but like some of them, like, I think one of the first ones I remember trying was a massive like barrel aged sour that, that Avery did in their like gold foil 
um, series. I don't know <laughs> if you know those bottles, but they're like, some, some of the beers are like 18% alcohol by volume. They're very over the fucking top, like crazy, crazy beers. Um, mm-hmm. Most of which I quite adore. Um, but I remember I had one that was like a 12% sour that was so acidic that I felt like my tonsils like immediately seized. And I was just like, yo, that's like, some people can handle that. That's like beyond my palate. Like, um, and so like True was one of the first that, that um, I, I remember um, encountering that had really like, like easy drinking, like cool, delicious sours. Um, you playing with a really broad palette and like, yeah, no shade on the Avery beer. I was just talking about, like I said, I love most of their stuff. Um, but, uh, yeah, like they're like true has been really killer for that. Um, yeah, but like, honestly, if I'm, if I'm being like, like serious about like what I'd like to drink here and maybe this is just the fact that I'm like a literal dad right now, like, like, uh, I've, I've liked seeing the trend of like really good, like fucking Keller pills um, and like, eat, like, like full bodied, but like crisp, delicious lagers coming back into, into so style. Um, mm-hmm. Cause like, you know, like going through like the fucking, like everything's gotta be a quintuple IPA fucking 13% thing. Like, that that you know that that became tiresome quick and it's like like so many so there's so many great double IPAs out there and I like good hoppy beer but there's also so many beers that are like I was having this conversation with a friend of mine who is like who's talking about how like half the time it seems like you go to like a new brewery and it's like like some dude had like one successful homebrew batch and like it's just like cool we're like getting alone and opening like a fucking like 10 barrel um like like brewing system you know and we're gonna brew to that scale now without necessarily like having learned that craft um and he was joking about like he, he this friend like uh, kind of uh succinctly put it to me he's like Man, like if you're a fucking sushi chef in Japan, you don't get to touch anything. You don't even get to touch the rice for seven years. Like, <laughs> like you have to like. There's something. There's something too. Like, like really like learning and knowing like the depth of your craft when it comes to like artfully putting out food or beer or any of that stuff. And you know, like like with the IPA boom, I guess what I'm saying with all this is like I tried so many beers that like just seemed like like just like. They just spent a, a fortune on hops and like paid no attention to any other balance with the beers mm-hmm. in a lot of these cases. And mm-hmm. like you drink it and you're just like, oh wow, like my gut is about to like explode and I need to take a nap. Like <laughs> like I'm gassy and like and sleepy and like I can't finish this beer. Um, um so yeah. so seeing like 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 good like like Keller pills or just like like just good pilsners um and like um martins and things like that coming back into prominence is like it's cool by me i also so i have mixed feelings about it and and i don't profess to be like that educated when it comes to beer i've i'm not i'm not the expert i'm not the guy you want brewing your fucking beer let's just say um (laughs) um but i i do have a, a decent amount of experience uh um you know heartily uh experiencing them um but like like um i'd say i guess so seeing seeing like these like these traditional like like I get what is it the the is it the German or Belgian beer purity law that like says like what what malts and hops you can use in a beer I can't remember you know what I'm talking about yeah the Reinheitsgebot the purity yeah. law yeah. Of, from Bavaria mm-hmm. so that's so that's 
there's, it's interesting to be able to make those beers to those style, but I can also see how that can be creatively limiting to like what you can do with the beer. It's like, okay, so like you can't put Palisade peaches in your beer because it's not on that list, but that would make a really dope sour. So, you know, um, I guess where I'm going with that is it's like, it's cool to see like these, these all kinds of different um, styles across the spectrum kind of like still get their, their, their day in court, so to speak, as opposed to, you know, it just being like you go into a 20 tap bar and like 19 of them are IPAs and double IPAs, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's a, it's a challenging thing and that's part of like where the market is and also um, in a weird way where the restaurant like on-premise world, I mean, was there, it, it doesn't exist right now, but um, to an extent that's what the customer wants, but the customer also can, can be an echo chamber too. And so it, you have to be kind of careful with that. And I think, that's one of the beauties about a city like Denver is you can have a place like true. And then a place that uh, I enjoy quite a bit in Denver is called hogshead and they're focused predominantly on cask and like continental really specifically like English style beers. Um, Very few of them are above 6%. uh, They're all like session strength and really well executed. And I know Hogshead uh, well, they have, they have, I think three different uh, cask, um, handles at Falling Rock that were pretty much dedicated to their stuff. Um, yeah, uh, Hogshead was the first brewery I went to the last time I was in Denver. Um, I nice. was really, really excited about that because we don't have anything remotely like that uh, in Chicago. And I think it's a, a unique thing for most cities to, to have a brewery that's focused in that way. I think um, speaking to what you were talking about with the Avery beers that you remember is that a lot of that was really a product of a specific time and place where craft beer, so craft beer is opposition to like fizzy yellow beer, right? Yeah. Um, oh, I, oh and- I remember all the, uh, the fucking, the stone, like, like, posturing mm-hmm. about like your beers yeah <laughs> and like the the garrett oliverisms and things like that <laughs> and i think that ultimately that gets taken in a into a direction where opposition is no longer ideological it becomes in practice and then when it becomes in practice then that means in flavor and that doesn't mean that you need to be putting something out that like is going to tear the enamel off your teeth. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but that's what, but that's what that like bare expression of opposition is, is like, okay, it's not yellow. Okay. So we need to make it brown or dark or black or red. It's not, um, you know, it's not a lager. So it needs to be um, top fermented should have ridiculous flavor to it on top of it. Um, and it has to be extreme so that people can talk about it um, in those terms and it can remain kind of oppositional. And I think that people who make craft beer um, that are going to be successful in the future, um, because as you said, like the barrier of entry isn't super high. You need a loan and you need like the gumption to do it. Um, and it's going to be even easier after this pandemic is over too, because there's going to be a glut of equipment available. There's going to be landlords that are like 
fiending to get people into their properties and there's going to be contractors <laughs> that are fiending for business. So there's going to be, it, it, it ain't going to stop, but it's more about <laughs> who can make beers that are going to resonate with people for uh, for a long time and that are going to adjust to a lot of different palates. They're going to be the underground mainstream, right? Yeah. And mm-hmm. that's where I think um, not just a lot of big breweries, because that's where they have to end up for sales, but that's where people like Hogshead uh, and True to an extent are, are going to land and that are going to be successful. True is a unique story in the sense that they've brought a lot of people from metal into craft beer. I think it's not just that they and breweries like Three Floyds or Stone way back in the day, um, they, they're they creating space still. And that is like introducing people to these flavors that aren't yellow fizzy and uh, bringing them bringing all these experiences together is like the final frontier of it. So that's like your dark Lord day. I don't know if uh true puts on an event. That's uh, I mean, nothing's we've, like dark we've Lord, played, but we've played true's anniversary, anniversary show. parties, right? Yeah, they have. Yeah. So their anniversary is on the summer solstice every year. And we've played like five of them. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> like we, we have some history with true. They literally paid to put us in the studio with Dave Otero at one point. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, but yeah, like they have they have a great little fest that um, has taken different different permutations over the years. But go on, finish your thoughts about Dark Lord. Yeah, that that is the thought. Uh, Sam, what are you? What have you been enjoying? I've been uh, envy enviously eyeing your glass. Oh, dude, you know it was the same as last week. We got some more brownie points over here. So finishing oh, up the uh, yeah. finishing up the four pack I bought. <laughs> oh, from uh, from Maplewood, yeah, brown yeah. ale, excellent choice. Always an excellent choice. Um, yeah, I, I went a little bit against the grain of uh, what I've been drinking recently, and I dove into a uh, contemporary style a uh, from Pipeworks Brewery here in Chicago, uh, Doom Jazz, that our friend, uh, if you're looking at the uh, art for this episode and every episode, uh, Bryn Gleason created the art for this. Uh, yeah. It's called called Doom Jazz. Uh the brewery describes it as a hazy India pale ale with lactose, citra. Oh my God, the word hops shows up five times here. Uh, <laughs> Idaho Seven Galaxy. Speaking of fucking IPA and, bombs. Yeah, speaking of fucking <laughs> IPAs and uh, Cryo Simcoe. Um, and it's it's pretty tasty. I, I haven't found Pipeworks to really get into the super sweet um, hoppy realm. I mean, when they're using lactose and doing all these like heavy late additions, it can get that way. Uh, but I found uh, clearly survey says I found the beer to be drinkable. <laughs> so um was excited for that, but it, it's not something like those styles haven't been as, uh, as fun for me recently. I've actually gone back into the, like I've hibernated back into old stock, older, beers and into like higher alcohol beers as well um it is it is giant barrel aged stout and uh barley wine season you know i mean that cold that cold arrives i i've I've got i've got some uh some other stuff behind me i have uh some some hibernation and then um i don't know if you know great divide um but of course i know hibernation very well yeah yeah yeah. well and i have no idea what their distribution is and or whether or not they're even in chicago but like um yeah i've got some of their stuff 
I've got um, some River North barley wines and stuff sitting in the fridge behind me. But so when I was when we were talking about all of these other styles being like oppositionally, defiantly like fucking high ABV, I still like that shit. Like, <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. I, I like it too. And and I think that those, but okay, so when you're talking about beers like hybridation or you're talking about like Yeti, um, mm-hmm. like the construction of those beers is totally different from what breweries that are making those styles now with lactose and that are like heavily adjuncted. Like the construction of those beers is totally different and they are different beverages altogether. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think that that's, that's what I'm, what I like about those beers is that, there's kind of something you can chew on with them. It's not just like alcohol and flavor, but there's um, a lot of richness to them and unique flavors. And it's almost like uh, I'm taken back into time when I drink those beers. Um, uh, yeah, like De- Yeti's Yeti's probably my best like Denver example or like. Love um, Yeti. I, I- I've yeah. just tried, by the way, if you if you chance across a can of a tall boy of the peanut butter Yeti, um, mwah, like um, absolutely delicious. And it's like it's like a it's it's everything you like about their gigantic imperial stouts, but like with a, a fucking like peanut butter chocolate thing going on. Mm. Oh, oh man, I've <laughs> been out of touch with them. They're they're distribu- They were they've been in Chicago for a really long time, and I think that uh, the the local heavy movement has kind of taken away uh, some of the space that they've had on tap at bars and restaurants and stuff like that. But I will say that um, the last time I saw a new Yeti variation was like the oatmeal Yeti when they got rid of the Belgian Yeti and they brought in like this oatmeal Yeti that was a little more contemporary, although like intuitionally somewhat similar. Um, I really liked that a lot. And the chocolate Yeti specifically because it wasn't like a redundant like coffee roast and then like roast grain profile. Like it was actually like a beer with a ton of depth. And I thought that uh, that oatmeal Yeti, if you can call it like a proto pastry stout, like uh, <laughs> it, it was uh, it was really fucking tasty. Just like capturing the the dark fruit note uh, that you would have gotten from the Belgian Yeti. I had some like bottles and kegs of Belgian Yeti that were very good. And there were a couple that were the, the yeast ester was just like fucking out of control and <laughs> uh, something had gone awry in the fermentation. Um, well, consider how so, much sugar you got to get up to like that fucking level of ABV. Like, like yeah. there's a lot that like with that yeast it can go fucking haywire, I would imagine. Yeah. And I don't think that it's a, at that time, I mean, that yeast wasn't used in, unless they were like using it in Colette oh, wow, we're getting really fucking back in time. Like, unless they were using that yeast in Colette a year, because Colette was a year-round beer, right? Yeah. Like Belgian blonde beer. Yeah, yeah. Um, unless they were using that beer and then creating, like, Belgian Yeti, on using that to prop up a yeast that could handle Belgian Yeti. I, I don't know. It, <laughs> it's hard. It, you, have to, you have to use those yeasts regularly in order to, like, really get the most of them. Yeah. Mm. Um. Yeah. Uh, fun times. Grant, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah. Sorry for uh, rambling your fucking ears off for probably no, longer good. than you anticipated this show to go. No, this is oh, no. awesome. I didn't if, even get uh, to talk about scotch. Fuck. No. <laughs> Maybe, uh, well, that's your impetus to put out a new album. Then we'll talk all about scotch. 
All yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that, that can definitely happen. And we'll take, we'll take a little, um, a liquid journey to Campbelltown. Yeah. Sounds fantastic. <laughs> and, um, once we can do, uh, live shows, uh, let's talk about bringing you back to Chicago. I'd love that. Yeah, Beautiful. absolutely. Give us some final words. All right. Um, yeah, just thank, thank you for having me. Um, also like everybody stay safe. I know the pandemic has reached all corners of the globe. Um, if you're interested in supporting Colorado artists, um, a lot of like the cool DIY and independent venues and places that give us some semblance of community uh, here in Denver um, are definitely struggling right now. So if you need to do any more Christmas shopping, there's some great record stores here in town. Mutiny Information K Cafe, excuse me, um, is a great DIY spot that gives um, musicians and artists of all of all backgrounds um, um, a venue to perform at when playing out was a thing. Um, also a great book selection. Um, then, uh, yeah, Chain Reaction Records, Twist and Shout Records, and then any of the venues uh, in Denver. Um, Wax Tracks Records, of course, um, mm -hmm. got a Chicago cousin um, in, in, in that, um, but I, they're not related as far as I know. Um, but yeah, a lot of Denver institutions that allow us to have a creative and uh, creatively vital scene are, you know, um, potentially having to shutter their doors. Um, so not saying you got to go spend a bunch of money during a fucking pandemic. I'm not asking anybody to do that, but uh, consider if you have have the money to spend, consider it. Um, and if you you can support other ways as well uh, via sharing bands and these these different venues and these different uh, DIY and indie institutions, social media posts. There's a lot of ways that you can still show support in these strange times. Uh, so I guess that that would be the last little soapbox I'm, I'm climbing on. Cool. Very well, a very important soapbox. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Well, thanks again for joining us, Grant, and we'll see everyone next week. Take care. All right, take care, yeah, guys. Cheers. Thanks for having me.